message comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, that's on page 3. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to invite you to stand as we are reading God's word, as we are in the presence of God. So let's honor him as we read. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought, um, also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his Ab- spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your Abel, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Um, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. O gracious Father, we thank you for the word that has just been read. Lord, now we need your help. So we ask for your spirit to come to give us illumination, understanding of your word, that we might come away, not just with our heads filled, but with our hearts changed, that you might impress upon us a, a word to each of us of how you are calling us to live, how you are calling us to repent, how you're calling us to believe. I pray, Lord, that you be glorified in this moment and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This book of Genesis gets dark pretty quick. We were literally just in paradise. And over the past few weeks, we've been walking through the first three chapters and we gloried in the majesty and beauty of creation. We delighted in the peacefulness and harmony of life in the garden. We celebrated the purity and wonder of the one flesh union between husband and wife. Things were going great. But then everything came to a crashing halt. Genesis 3 happened. A serpent 
slithered in whispering crafty lies. A couple tried to rise above their station. Mutiny ensued. A rebellion started and a curse fell upon this once pristine world. And now, now at the start of Genesis 4, we encounter the world's first murder. And it's a case of fratricide, a brother killing brother. Sin escalates quickly. Like I said, things get dark pretty quick. You know, last week's text, we saw Adam and Eve get banished from the garden. They were driven east of Eden. And today, if you look at the end of our text there in verse 16, we see Cain expelled from the presence of the Lord east of Eden. So there's a theme going on that to live east of Eden is to live outside of paradise. To live east of Eden is to live in a fallen world, to live a life that is separated from the very presence of God. And suffice it to say, that kind of life stinks. It's no good at all. Life east of Eden is life with sin on the loose, lurking and crouching behind every corner, ready to to pounce on you and to take you down when you're not looking. Hatred grips the human heart. Violence is always on the rise. Families are broken. Marriages suffer. Relationships are painful. But grace is there. Even the east of Eden, grace is there. And where there is grace, hope will follow. And so church, this morning we're going to study a, a dark and gloomy text, but I hope you see that there is some light at the end. If you have eyes of faith to see it, you'll see that light. Now, since we're in the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, understandably there are a lot of firsts here. There's the first human pair, the first marriage, the first pregnancy, the first child. What we're going to focus on today can be summarized as well by three firsts. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline, and we're going to consider the first case of rivalry, the first act of murder, and the first grant of clemency. That's where where we're going this morning in our text, and so let's begin with the first case of rivalry. Rivalries can be found everywhere, between nations, as we see right now going on in the world in Ukraine, between class, between the rich and poor, between political parties, the left versus the right, between colleagues and classmates, it's a lot of rivalry, and of course, between siblings, sibling rivalry. And you can make the argument that all of our rivalries today and all of their ruinous effects stem back to this ancient rivalry between two brothers, between Cain and Abel. Their rivalry is related to the rivalry or enmity that was prophesied earlier in chapter 3 between two lines of offspring. They are speaking to the serpent. The Lord had said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, if you look over there, Genesis 3:15, he said, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring." So this enmity 
between these two lines of offspring is now on display between these two brothers. And as we're going to see, Cain represents the offspring of the serpent, while Abel represents the woman's offspring. Now, what started this rivalry? Where did all this enmity come from between these two brothers? We can argue that it came from their parents. Not, not just through the fallen nature that they passed down to them, but specifically in the way that these two brothers were raised with two different set of expectations. You get a hint of this in just verses 1 and 2. Well, listen again to Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, Cain in Hebrew sounds like the word in Hebrew for gotten. So that's why Eve says that she has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, notice with me how she calls her offspring a man, ish. We saw that word ish earlier when when Adam refers to himself as ish. She didn't use the Hebrew word for baby or the Hebrew word for son. She says man. And that's a hint that she's already thinking about who he might grow up to be. Because remember, she was told that an offspring of hers would one day grow up and bruise the head of the serpent. That he would inflict a mortal wound on the devil. Well, it sounds as if Eve is thinking, she's gotten that very man. She mistakenly assumed that Cain was that promised offspring. And this, this reading of the text is reinforced by the name that she gives to her second son. Look in verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel's name means vapor or breath. And just as a vapor quickly comes and goes, the same Hebrew word can also be translated as vanity. It's the word that's quite frequently used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, able of ables, all is able. In other words, he's useless. Cain is the heir, Abel is the spare. He's not needed since Cain is the presumed offspring of promise. And so you can see that expectations placed on these two boys couldn't be more different. And the point that I'm making here is that Cain was particularly raised with great expectations. He grew up assuming that he was the chosen one. He was the highly favored one. And his brother is useless. Now that explains a lot. It explains why these two brothers worship God with two very different attitudes. We're told in verse 2 that Cain took after his father Adam and, and took on his vocation as a farmer. He became a worker of the ground. But Abel was a keeper of sheep. He became a shepherd. Now, Scripture is not pitting these two vocations against each other. There's no inherent conflict between the agricultural and the pastoral. You know, both are fitting. Both are God-honoring professions. And both brothers brought an offering that corresponds to their particular profession. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So God accepts Abel's offering, but rejects Cain's. Now, friends, there's no reason to assume that animal offerings are somehow considered better than grain offerings or that that God would only be pleased by an offering if blood was shed. I mean, those are some interpretations out there, but really, uh, the type of offering is really not the issue. But notice a hint of difference between what they particularly offer. Notice the emphasis in the text on Abel's offering being from the fat portions of the animal. Because later on in the Pentateuch, in, in in the five books of Moses, we learn that in the sacrificial system that is put in place, it was the fatty portions of the animal that were considered the most desirable and therefore to be dedicated to the Lord. The smell of the fat as it was burned is described in Scripture as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So that's that's important for us to notice here. What this implies is that Abel was offering to the Lord a gift of the finest quality, the best fruits of his labor. Now, notice how this is in contrast to just the plain description of the gift that Cain brings. He gives an offering of the fruit of the ground. He brought an offering. It's better than nothing, but was it the best that he could bring? You don't get that impression, especially compared to the way Abel and his offering is described. And notice how it says that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock, indicating just how precious, just how valuable his offering was. But for Cain, there's no mention of him bringing, bringing an offering from the first fruits of his crop. And that could explain why God had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and what he offered. Now, admittedly, we can only speculate here since the text doesn't explicitly tell us why God rejected Cain's offering. But even if we don't know what's wrong with his offering, we do know that Cain's heart was definitely in the wrong place by looking at his reaction to God showing favor towards his brother. The text says that he was very angry and his face fell. And we know, we know without a doubt that really the issue was a heart problem. It was an attitude problem for Cain because the New Testament tells us exactly that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we are told, quote, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith that made the difference. So faith is the issue. Abel's sacrifice was motivated by faith. And the heart of faith, friends, the heart of faith finds joy in the worship of God for God's own sake. Not in the hope of what might follow. Not because of what might result from us worshiping him. That apparently was Cain's motivation. That was his attitude. He brought an offering to the Lord with expectation that he was going to receive something in return. He expected to receive God's favor. Remember, he was under the assumption that he was the highly favored one, not not his brother. What that means 
that Cain wasn't really worshiping by faith. He was worshiping by negotiation. Lord, I'm going to offer this to you if you agree to give me that, to give me what I've been desiring. That, that, That was his attitude as he worshiped God, and that is why his offering was ultimately rejected. Now, let's be clear, though. That didn't mean the Lord rejected him. He had no regard for Cain's offering, but the Lord had great regard for Cain himself, which is why he speaks to Cain with such urgency and such caution. Listen to verses 6 to 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God warns him that sin is lurking like a predatory animal. It's crouching. It's ready to pounce. Its desire is against you. It's contrary to you. Sin is seeking to dominate you and to control you. Cain, your situation is even worse than your parents. They were tempted by something that was outside of them, external to them. At the beginning of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they didn't have a fallen nature. But now, in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they all have fallen natures. So that means Cain is being tempted by sin not just out there, but by sin that's already inside of him, crouching at the door of his heart. That is how dire his situation is. But even so, his fall is not inevitable. Notice how he is, he is presented with a choice, with, with, with responsibility to do the right thing. Cain, if you do well, you will be accepted. Literally, it says your face will be lifted up. Because earlier, his face had fallen. God says, if you do well, your face will be lifted. You will be accepted. You'll be forgiven. So, so don't sleep on sin. Don't ignore it. Recognize its danger. Flee from sin. Pursue righteousness. That's God's warning to Cain. And, and church, really, that is God's word. That is God's warning to each of us. If you are a Christian, if you have experienced Christian conversion, If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, then your fallen nature has been transformed into a new nature. You, as a Christian, are a new creation in Christ. Now, since you still are in the flesh and you have yet to receive your resurrected body, which is our hope one day, since you have yet to receive that body, that means that right now, a remnant of sin still resides in you. And so, like with Cain, sin and temptation are still inside you. And they can have a strong influence over you. But you have a choice. Christ has freed you from from the penalty of sin, but he's also freed you from the power of sin. So that means by the Spirit of God inside of you, you actually do have the power to say no to sin and temptation. 
You are not an unwitting tool in the hands of sin. You are not defeated. You may feel that way, but in Christ, you are not defeated. By the grace of God, you actually can resist that sin. You can say no to temptation. You can choose to do well. Now, unfortunately, Cain chose poorly, which leads to our second observation, to the first act of murder in human history. This occurs, this occurs in verse 8. Let's read that. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, the word for killed is is the Hebrew word for intentional homicide, for murder. It's not the word that's actually used in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. That would also there include manslaughter, that that is killing someone without premeditation, without malice. You might call that unintentional homicide. But that's, that's clearly not the case here. We're not told exactly how Cain murdered Abel, but the narrator makes it clear that this was totally intentional. This was premeditated. He lured his brother out into a field where there would be no eyewitnesses, and he murdered him. Cain killed Abel. You can see how life east of Eden is exponentially worse than in the garden. Because Cain's reaction after being confronted with his sin is exponentially worse than how his parents reacted when God confronted them. Adam and Eve, as we saw earlier, they responded with excuses. They responded with with blame shifting. But Cain responds with violence. He channels all that anger, resentment, and bitterness towards his brother, and he expresses it through murderous violence. Now, We could venture to guess that it was envy or jealousy that was the the real motivation for why he killed his brother. But actually, we don't have to guess why he did it. Because the Bible actually tells us why Cain killed Abel. In 1 John 3, verse 12, 1 John 3, verse 12, John is exhorting believers to love one another and not to be like Cain, And he says, quote, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So we're told exactly why. Cain murdered his brother because Abel's deeds were righteous and his were not. His brother served as a stark reminder of how he ought to be living. Abel, simply by by practicing his righteousness in public, was a source of constant conviction for Cain. And I'm sure he hated feeling that way all the time, which caused him to hate the one who made him feel that way. People living in darkness hate the light because of how it it exposes them. And they end up hating the people who give off that light. And friends, I know this from my own experience. I remember when I was living in darkness, when I was living far from God. It was my first couple years 
of college. And my college roommate at the time, he was still walking with the Lord. And little did he know, he was a source of constant conviction for me. He was just doing his thing. He was just, he was just reading his Bible in the morning, praying to the Lord, and it would annoy me to no end. I, I just, I hated seeing him do his devotions because it reminded me of how I ought to be living. Now, don't worry, he's still alive and well. And, and, and he's still a, a good example of how Christians can serve as a light in dark places, not through, you know, ostentatious displays of religiosity, but through simple, modest, consistent acts of righteousness. Practicing your faith in faithfulness. That's what it's about. Friends, if people attack you because you're being a phony, if you're persecuted because you're a religious jerk, well then, you only have yourself to blame. But if you suffer as a Christian for the sake of righteousness, then do not be ashamed. Rather, glorify God in that name, in the name of Christian. You are in Christ. Now, if we return to our story, you'll notice it skips over whatever Cain exactly did to cover up his crime, and it, it immediately jumps to God's confrontation of him. So look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, why are you asking me? I'm not his mother. I'm not responsible for keeping him, as in guarding him or watching over him. But the irony is that he is. Cain, you and your brother were both made in the image of God. And the Lord God is your keeper. He blesses you and keeps you. And so as divine image bearers, you and your brother were meant to do the same. You were meant to keep each other, to watch out for each other, to protect each other, to be accountable for one another. Yes, Cain, you are responsible for your brother. And church, we need to hear that. We need to hear that word because we live in a culture of radical individualism where there's just this unspoken understanding that we're not supposed to bother each other and to get into each other's lives. That, that's inappropriate. You know, let's just keep things nice and, and harmonious by only going so deep as to what's on the surface. Your business is none of my business. That's the general attitude. We just don't see ourselves as our brother's or our sister's keeper. But then what else does it mean when Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens or, or to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom or to encourage one another, to build one another up or to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today or simply to love one another? There simply is no way to live out the one another's of the New Testament apart from an understanding that, yes, we are our brother's keeper. And that's why, that's why on a practical level, we join the church. That's why we enter into a covenant relationship with fellow believers making a promise 
to be each other's keeper. That's what it means to be a church member. That's what it means to join a church, to tell each other, I will be your keeper. I will keep you as you keep me. I will watch over you as you watch over me. That is our responsibility. Now let's turn back to the text. Let's turn back to verse 10 and let's listen to God's response to Cain. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now notice how the Lord personified both the blood and the ground. Abel's blood is now described as crying out to the Lord, crying out for justice, crying out for vindication. Cain bears blood guilt, and it is not easily washed away. And the ground, look how the ground is personified. It's described as having a mouth that swallows up the innocent blood of Abel, making the ground no longer fertile and responsive to Cain, but now it's going to be sterile. It's going to be stubborn, refusing to yield its fruit to Cain. And remember, Cain was a farmer. That was his profession. But now that door is closed for him. And he becomes a wandering fugitive. He loses his family, his sense of belonging. He's expelled from both the Lord's presence and from his community. This is a severe punishment. And Cain has the audacity to complain about it. He says in verses 13 to 14, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Now you might be wondering, who could be out there to kill him? Unless he's referring to his parents, didn't he already kill the only other person on the planet? Well, we're not given the information, but it is reasonable to assume that at this point there were other people in the world. As in, Adam and Eve had plenty more children than what's recorded in Scripture. Because remember, it says that Adam lived until he was 930 years old. And so there was very likely other children other siblings out there and their descendants. And so Cain is worried that one of his siblings or one of their descendants might one day try to avenge their brother or to avenge their uncle by slaying him. There's the irony, isn't it? There's the irony there. That he who turned on his relative and killed him is now fearful that his own relatives might do something similar to him. Cain is a tragic figure. But friends, those are the consequences for murder. Murder is a heinous sin. It is arguably the worst thing that you could do to a person. It's so bad. It's so bad that most of us feel rather secure in the assumption that we never would and, or we never could ever commit murder. But if you're thinking that, if you feel like, man, that's something, I mean, it's horrible, I, 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 but I just, I, I can't ever imagine myself ever doing that. That's why we need to listen to the wisdom of James chapter 4, verse 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Let me read James 4, 1 and 2. Whatever, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among, among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. So according to James, what causes someone to commit murder? It's not a mental issue. It's not because of years of trauma or negative conditioning. That James says murder comes from disordered desires within you, passions at war within you. Friends, what that means is that you and I may never commit the act of murder itself. And thank God if we never commit the act of murder. But the sinful desires behind every act of murder could very well be in us. They just get expressed in other destructive ways. Through hateful thoughts, angry words, bitter attitudes. It just gets expressed differently. Jesus said it best in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he preached, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, friends, don't brush off this sin too quickly and and just think that Cain serves as a good warning for those people over there, but not for yourself. Keep a close watch on your own heart and be quick to confess, quick to repent whenever you detect in your heart those same sinful desires that do give birth to murderous violence. Now, you might be you might be shocked and kind of surprised that Cain is not immediately put to death for what he did and how he receives mercy instead. Now, that, that leads us to our third and final observation, the first grant of clemency. Let's consider the first grant of clemency. Starting in verse 14, the Lord reassures Cain who is afraid that someone is going to avenge Abel by killing him, the Lord reassures him by saying to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So Cain hears from the Lord a word of divine promise, and he also receives an act of divine protection. The Lord puts some kind of mark on him. So that now anyone who attempts to exact vengeance on Cain will have no excuse, no ability to plead ignorance because there's this mark on him. And so vengeance will now be taken out on that person sevenfold. And that should deter anyone from even thinking about killing Cain. But even though clemency is granted to him, he still does have consequences to face. So in verse 16, it goes on to say that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the word Nod is related to the word for wanderer. So the wanderer ends up in the land of wandering. There's poetic justice here. But still, it's surprising that Cain didn't die. It's surprising that he was actually shown mercy. But friends, it's not for the reason that you might think. 
It's not because Cain ends up as this redeemed figure. No, no he, he was not granted clemency because God was trying to preserve the offspring of the woman. Now, God, God doesn't safeguard his life because the plan is for the chosen one to come through the line of Cain. Now, as the story of Scripture unfolds, we are told that the chosen one actually comes through the line of Seth. That's another son that is born of Adam and Eve that happens at the end of chapter 4. So the, the shocking realization is that Cain is granted clemency, his life is safeguarded in order that the offspring of the serpent may be preserved. Because nowhere in Scripture is Cain presented as this repentant, redeemed figure. He's consistently presented in the rest of Scripture as, as representative of forces opposed to God and to God's plans. Remember, we said earlier that Cain represents the offspring of the serpent. But even so, in the sovereign plan of God, the offspring of the serpent had to be preserved. God apparently intended for his people, the offspring of the woman, to go through hardship in life, to meet opposition, and to face persecution by the serpent's offspring. Now, the Lord is all-powerful. The Lord can do anything. He could have extinguished the serpent and his line right then and there by eliminating Cain. But he didn't. He granted clemency. He kept him alive. He allowed him to marry. He allowed him to have children and to extend his line, the line of the serpent. It's hard to understand why. But that's because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has reasons and purposes that, that we cannot yet fully grasp. But here, friends, is a way to think about it. If, according to Scripture, all things are created through Christ and for Christ, if all of God's works in creation and redemption are accomplished for the praise of his glory, then even the preservation of Cain and his line has a purpose that ultimately leads to the glorification of Christ. That means that God was willing to endure thousands of years of suffering, evil, violence, war, all stemming from the unholy influence of the serpent and his offspring, all in order, all in order that the fullest display of all the glories of God's Son would be achieved at the cross, where he laid down his life even for a fallen world that commits such atrocities. Friends, the simple fact is that we would not know Christ in the fullness of all his glory as Lord and Savior if not for the preservation of Cain and his offspring. Because just as Cain killed Abel thousands of years down the line, Cain's offspring would kill again. They would shed innocent blood again because they too hated a man for his righteous deeds. But this time, that blood would belong to God's own son. And that blood 
Oh, friends, that blood would speak a better word. Hebrews 12, 24 talks about the blood of Jesus and how it, quote, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. You see, Abel's blood cries out guilty. It shouts for justice. But Jesus' blood cries out forgiveness. It shouts mercy. Some of you have come here today bearing a, a heavy load. Some of you have come here today feeling the weight of your sin. Maybe you said something hurtful out of anger to someone that you care about and you wish that you could just oh, take those words back. But they're out there. Like Abel's blood, your hurtful words are out there and they cry out. They cry out to condemn you. Or perhaps you did something shameful, something you're not proud of, and you're hoping, you're hoping and praying that it stays covered. You're hoping no one finds out. But like Abel's blood, your hidden sins cry out to expose you. And your only hope, friend, your only hope is to cry out to Jesus yourself and to ask him to cover you and to cover your sins with his blood, his blood that muffles the cry of your sins and speaks a better word of mercy and forgiveness. So cry out to Jesus now. He won't disappoint you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do a work in each of us a work of humility, a work of conviction, that you would lead each of us to a place of repentance where we now cry out to you as our only hope, knowing that there is so much sin and evil in this world, but also in our hearts. And it cries out to condemn us and so we only have you. We have you in the blood of your Son as our only hope. Lord Jesus, cover us and cleanse us. We pray in your name. Amen.